0: Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects 4th Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The Talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fandes Ecla European Café Society being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. Due to the coronavirus lockdown and the temporary closure of Ombra, this talk was hosted as an online event via Zoom so that we could continue the Negroni Talk series as planned.
1: Welcome to Negroni Talk 27, although it's the 29th we've done somewhat confusingly. Um, and uh, welcome from myself, Steve and Paolo, um, who are full space. Um, and uh, yeah, we uh, we normally do these in Ombra, um, but we haven't done for the best part of a year, obviously with the pandemic and, you know, hopefully, God willing, we get back there some point this year and can do it all in person. But uh, for now, we're sort of doing it obviously on Zoom is the next best thing. We've done a few of these um, through last year um, and just one before Christmas. Um, and um, yeah, uh, sort of got back the appetite to do some more in 2021 um, whilst we can. So we're starting off the year with a, a little mini series on washing. Um, sort of airing architectures, dirty Laundry is the sort of of subtitle of the series Uh, and we're doing this is the first one on on greenwashing and then we're going to be doing two more in mid-March and uh, April 1st actually um, on uh, two other subjects that are obviously on Eventbrite uh, and you can see what those are there so um, as ever we're sort of supported in this by a little bit by Campari, but mainly by uh, Rob, Fine and Bobby Jewell, who helped us set these things up and get all the speakers. So um, on that note, I will hand over to Maria Smith of Bureau of Haport, who has very kindly um, decided to chair what looks like a very busy talk already. So um, over to you, Maria.
2: Thank you. Hello, everybody. And yeah, thanks everyone for having me at a virtual Negroni talk. I only have beer because I don't have the right um, ingredients, but it'll be fine. I've already had one, so we'll be getting warmed up. Um, So, yeah, so I'll just keep my own introduction super brief, I guess. I mean, maybe that's enough. Um, It's Maria Smith, and um, I am now um, Director of Sustainability and Physics at Bureau Happold's London office. Um, I'm also on the RBA Council, and that's probably enough hats. Um, So I'm going to... Um, ask the fantastic panel to introduce themselves and ask them each a kind of opening punt question Um, please chuck all of your questions and comments in the chat what we're going to do is we're going to have a bit of a conversation between the panel just for about like 15-20 minutes um, and then open it up to the floor Um, it's helpful if you if your question is directed at somebody in particular, if you like put their name maybe first so that we can kind of see, cause there's gonna be a lot of chat. But um, yeah, some questions we will probably just put to, directly to the panelists and some we might um, spotlight you and ask you to answer the question if you feel so inclined, but of course, absolutely no pressure if you don't. Um, okay, let's get going. So firstly, I would like to go to Angela, kind of like, to ask Angela to introduce herself, and then explain to us, Angela, why is greenwashing so easy?
3: <laughs> hi, hi everyone. Uh, my name's Angela Dapper. I'm a principal at uh, Grimshaw Architects. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here for this debate because I think uh, as, a, as kind of a representative of big architecture practices, uh, we, we like to make big transformational change. And I think sometimes uh, there's, a, there's a lot of questions around their compatibility with sustainability. So I welcome this debate to, to have this chat because I really do believe that um, we all need to work together to create the change. Um, so in terms of uh, your question, um, Maria, um, the, sorry, I can't remember the question. It's uh, in terms of- Why greenwashing, is greenwashing so easy? I, I mean, I think green it's a it's an interesting term. And I think the thing about greenwashing is it it means different things to different people. To you know, there are statements that people make without understanding all of the implications of what's happening. I think for me, greenwashing is less about uh, a particular statement, but less about particular like blatant untruths, more about a lack of clarity about what needs to be done to get to to, to the pathway of net zero carbon. So I think part of it is like when we talk about greenwashing, we're not really truly measuring initiatives and innovation in terms of the whole life impacts. So I think there's a lot of greenwashing, which is part truths. Uh, and we're not telling the whole story. And for me, part of that is information available as well. So there's there's a whole there's a whole kind of list of blurry areas that we're seeing, and a lot of it is basically to do with the lack of information available
2: to us. Okay, thank you. Well, we are going to dig more into that in time. Um, next, I want to go to Joe. Um, and Joe, if you could introduce yourself, and then please give um, give us all some. Um, some tips perhaps, like what makes a really successful bit of greenwash?
4: Hello, um, so my name's Joe Giddings. I am one of the group of people that founded Architects Climate Action Network back in summer of 2019. Um, Spent quite a lot of my time working on campaigns and particularly um, around embodied carbon at ACAN. Um, so can you repeat your question again? Sorry.
2: Sure. Um, what makes a really successful bit of greenwash?
4: Well, it's, it's, it's all, it's most often done by companies, I think. And, um, it's almost always something that is blatantly bad for the environment that is spun into something which is somehow okay or fine um i think um i mean i think uh, oil is the classic example isn't it the the oil companies of um the 70s the late 70s they knew exactly what damage their products were doing and they had they had product uh, they had meetings about it uh, between all the oil companies uh, and then rather than do anything about it they spent a few decades kind of basically concocting um stories about uh science that proved that that kind of well didn't pro- disproved the, the climate science, I suppose. Um, and this, this kind of culminated in 2019. I think there was a, there was a high profile case. BP were, had this global ad campaign that they were basically spinning themselves as, um, as saints and, and um, talking about everything that they were doing that, that was sustainable and renewable but neglecting the fact that 96% of their their investment was in oil and gas. Um, So it's it's always picking on that very small thing that you're doing that that you can paint as sustainable and and using it to to eclipse the the much greater um, sin, I suppose, that's at the heart of your business.
2: Okay, fantastic, thank you. Um, Next, Sabrina, do you want to introduce yourself first and then I'll ask you the question? Or would you like me to ask you the question and then ask me to ent- ask you the question again it's really up to you
5: okay no i'll introduce myself first because otherwise it will get too confusing and then when i get nervous i speak very fast so nobody will benefit from that um hi everyone my name is sabrina syed i'm a part two architectural assistant i graduated from edinburgh university in 2019 in 2020 for the duration of the lockdown i've been working with a small practice on a research publication called antarctic resolution for last year now this year's venice biennale it's essentially like a massive anthology about how architecture climate and geopolitics intersect and at the same time i'm also a contributing editor I'm an editorial contributor for the architectural review so i have been buried in scientific journals for the past 12 months happily so okay welcome um
2: so um what advice would you offer somebody trying to unpick whether or not they're being hoodwinked by greenwashing
5: that's a good question um so personally for me um for me greenwashing and especially for some context um this month I had researched and, writ- and written an article that focuses mainly on greenwashing for the Architectural Review. It's called "Outrage," and I was thinking of this exact question when I was researching it. And I think it all has to do with language, um, because greenwashing is a performance. It's a performance for, it's a performance in terms of imagery. It's a performance in terms of architecture. But most importantly, like not only most, not most importantly, but something that's disseminated the most is the language. And that's something that anyone can unpick because it comes in the form of press releases, which you know, I think it's also problematic that we're fed some, like a diet of press releases anyway. And the words that are used can just numb you because they at this point are so overused and so overexposed. So to answer your question, I actually looked at a bunch of press releases now um, I'm not, I will not name the practices. I will not name the buildings. I read a bunch of them um, and you get words like sustainable, eco-friendly, cooling, fresh air, comfort, green curtain, vegetation, tree covered, intensely planted, meadows, woodlands, green icon. My favorite is taken root because we know that's not true in any sense of the word. And I think when you see language that presents it as this amazing sugary eco-fantasy, um i don't know the word in english but we say at home like your ears stand up you know you see that like and when none of that language that is gorgeous and flowery which i think architects are so familiar with because we know what it's like to just pour flowery language and gloss over words so much we learned that we learned that during crits like we learned that at 18 in first year of architecture school um or like and it it just continues. The second you see something that promises an image that is just so too good to be true without any quantitative data, and most importantly, without the other end of the spectrum, without any science to actually back it, then that warrants you taking a second look. And unfortunately, we're so inundated with that that it's almost like a vortex. I think it's very easy to spot greenwashing when a building is overperforming both visually and in terms of words, because I think and I think journalists do this very well, because we always want to see when somebody's overperforming what they're insecure about and what they're trying to hide.
2: Sage advice. Thank you, Sabrina. Um, and Marcus, um, could you please introduce yourself and mm. also maybe give us some fun anecdotes from everything that you've seen of some of some of the best or maybe it's the worst bits of greenwashing that you've
6: been presented with. I'm Marcus Fairs. I'm a journalist. I am the founder and editor-in-chief of Design, the online architecture and design magazine. And I am um, um, very, very interested in greenwashing. Um, I wrote an article about greenwashing last year and I was really pleasantly surprised to discover the root of the word greenwashing comes from an article written by a New York environmental journalist called Jay Westervelt. Who wrote an essay about the hotel industry's practice of putting those little cards in the room do you know that says if you care about the environment don't put your towels on the floor i only found that out last year but i've been obsessed with those cards for years i've collected them so um, my first example of greenwashing is the card in the hotel that says if you care about the environment don't ask us to wash your towels every day I actually put something on Twitter about it about ten, 10 years ago, which was said like, if they really cared, they would say, don't wash your towels and we'll split the difference with you on the cash saving. Because of course, the reason they don't want to wash the towels every day is to save money. We get press releases every day that are greenwashing um, or that, which are on investigation greenwashing, because the problem is, to answer one of the previous questions, it's so easy to greenwash Because nobody knows the science. Nobody knows the actual answer. Nobody knows whether it's good for the planet or not. So greenwashing trades on people's ignorance. And also the the science is changing fast. I mean, things that we're talking about, zero carbon, if you'd mentioned that three years ago, no one would have known what you were talking about. Circular economy, likewise. A good example, to answer your question, of recent greenwashing is we got a press release from Coca-Cola saying that to help the planet, they were reducing the... Um, amount of virgin plastic they were going to use by 20% this year. That's greenwashing because they're the world's biggest plastic polluter and to reduce it by 20% is, is just hopeless. To, to try and sell that as some kind of positive is just disgusting. And that's that's when the hard work starts though, because you have to then investigate that and look into it and, and uncover the greenwashing and try and embarrass them. But it's hard so people fall for good greenwashing because they want good news stories about the argument they don't understand the science and it's hard
2: it's really hard thank you um thanks marcus um maybe then let's just pick up on that and go back to angela um sort of you described that we're sort of swimming in this ocean of part truths and scraps of information um which makes it really really easy for Sort of greenwash to be kind of cast and as we're we're trading on ignorance, as Marcus put it. So, um, how can we how can we start to combat that then? How can we get more information? Do we need more information? Do we need to inform ourselves and be able to trade in sort of some uh, more facts rather than all of these fictions? Is that is that part of the answer?
3: It's part of the answer, but it's also how the facts are are given to us. So if we if we start talking about you know, something like concrete, for instance, you know, we talk about the material per se, but, you know, are we talking about the complete impacts? You know, are we talking about how it's created in the first place? You know, there there are kind of limits to how the impacts of materials are measured. And and part of that, so if we're talking about the cost of concrete, for instance, we're not talking about the whole cost of the impact it's creating. So, you know, if, if we're, suppliers started dealing in whole life costs or, you know, so Coca-Cola, if they had to pay for all that plastic to get rid of it, what is that cost? You know, when we're dealing with part costs, we're dealing with part truths and we're not dealing with the whole answer. So, and I think this is where greenwashing, you know, it's really easy to greenwash because people only have we deal a lot in, okay, here's the status quo and we're going to reduce it by 20%. This, this is a normal dialogue for us. And this is kind of how building regs works. This is how a lot of materials and material suppliers work. We've got a status quo and we're reducing it, but reductions don't get us to net carbon zero. We need a wholesale change and we need to look at everything holistically. So, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a big change. And part of that big change, if you're talking about big changes to that level, where people are actually uh, need to be responsible for the materials they're producing and the pollution they're producing to create these materials. Then uh, you're talking about policy change. So, you know, so there there are big changes required um, to avoid greenwash. But, you know, we need data for data data. How, I can't remember how you say it in the UK, data data, <laughs> data The um, whatever it is, data. Uh, we need data first, so we need to understand what the problem is. But I think even as architects, we're not getting enough of the the data, the data to um, to know where the good choices are. So, you know, that's our first problem. And two, we need to make the material suppliers responsible. And I think as as architects, we have agency Like we we spend a lot of money on building materials. And so, you know, we willingly specify these materials. We have agency to create change and to push innovation in these materials. And so we need to work together to create to create that change and influence uh, not only the material suppliers for innovation, but also the government for um, policy change around that.
2: Um, Joe, Angela's talking about um, externalities there and um, sort of bringing those into the, on, onto the balance sheet. Do you think that's enough? Um, is that going to bring us the kind of whole scale change that we need?
4: Um. No, I, I think um, Angela also mentioned something something else. It's probably worth picking up on talking about the whole picture of projects, which I think is really important. Um, not only not only how we build them and how uh, how they're run in terms of energy, but but what they do, what the project is, and um, I think this is a question that we've been kind of ducking as architects for a really long time and uh, it's probably about time we talked about it i mean a, a really good example from last year is um is grimshaw and heathrow and <laughs> so i might as well bring this up early so uh, <laughs> um, <There> we <laughs> if we're going to talk about the whole picture of projects then we should we should talk about it honestly and talk about um how what that building's for and um and that wider impact of it. If we're looking at Heathrow, um, the the scale of the the impact of it is just absolutely ginormous. I mean, um, civil aviation uh, itself accounts for like two to three percent of of our global emissions on their own. And then when you take into account this thing called radiative forcing, so it's it's how you kind of um, uh, you weigh up different amounts of emissions. Um, they have different impacts depending on where they take place. So emissions in the upper atmosphere have a greater impact. So so scientists think that the radiative forcing of aviation is between 1.9 and 4. So you times that 2.4% by 1.9 and 4, and you get something between 4 and 9%. So that's 4 and 9% of our total impact on global heating as, as um, as a population of the world. Um, And that puts it somewhere like third or fourth largest country in the world, like just around the same size as as India. (laughs) So aviation's got a massive impact. But then you have companies like Grimshaw basically not accepting the the illegality, basically, of, of Heathrow. It was deemed illegal by the Court of Appeal. And instead of kind of backing out at the perfect opportunity, what they do is they produce a report that says um, aviation's essentially fine because it connects the world and it's got all these other benefits and it's probably going to decarbonize somewhere around 2035. So we're just going to kind of plow ahead with this this project with with expanding Heathrow at exactly the wrong time. And so I think Angela's totally right to say we should look at the whole picture. But I think the whole picture should include what the building's used for as well. Or what the infrastructure is used for.
3: Can, can I can I respond please? <laughs> okay, I mean this I was ready for this debate, and I was like, okay, why would I be invited to a greenwashing talk? And it's exactly I knew it was for this reason. And you know, and I think as uh, big practices and big architect big architecture practices seen largely as uh, incompatible, and you know we haven't even you know mentioned HS2. And, you know, and I think for for us, we we had this debate and there was a lot of uh, discomfort in our in our practice at one point and uh, and I think it was maybe late. 2019 definitely before march 2020 we had this debate in our office and you know and we we welcome this debate and and we need to talk about it and we recognize where uh there are issues around aviation aviation you're right it's it's about three percent of uh global emissions about carbon emissions uh but five percent if you're talking all inclusively but the big issue around it is we're trying to reduce carbon emissions everywhere but that's one area that that is difficult to reduce so proportionally it gets larger over time as well so it's something that needs to be addressed but i think as a company uh we really feel that it's not a place there there are there are advances in Air. I think it's it's slightly ignorant not to deal with air. And I think as a company, we wanna be at the forefront of change. We realize that's controversial and we realize it's challenging, but there are a lot of infrastructure and a lot of buildings associated with, with airports that also need decarbonizing and that's important. But there's also potential, there is a lot of research and we want to be there to support that research in terms of decarbonizing air travel itself. So as much as, you know, and I and I actually personally, um, I had issues with expanding on Heathrow, but I think making efficiencies within airports, I think is still the way to go and it's still the place that we wanna be. So, you know, it's a challenging place to be. And I think as a company, Grimshaw has always put themselves out there to be at the front of that challenge. We're not scared of a challenge and we're not, uh, you know, there are there is a debate to be had around that and we welcome the debate. But I think there are a lot of areas. So if we were really going to get real about carbon emissions, we shouldn't be building anything. I think, you know, you could start there. You're like, what do we build? We have a world that needs to be decarbonized. It needs to be changed. And and I think we all need to kind of engage in that discussion to work out which direction it needs to go to to get from here to where we need to be.
6: But also, can I say something? That This talk is about greenwashing. And greenwashing is the knowing communication of false narratives about, about the environment. The, the fact that flying uh, creates 3% of carbon emissions, we know that. That's not greenwashing. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. That's a fact that we can all deal with. We could So therefore, we can make a choice whether to fly or not, whether to protest, whether to bring legal action, whether to not work for a company who builds airports. That's not greenwashing, though. That's the realm of facts. The realm of greenwashing is when people mislead you into thinking that you're doing something sustainable when when they're not. Um, The internet creates more carbon emissions than aviation. Mm -hmm. Not talked about. This Zoom call will probably create about a kilogram of CO2 emissions. It's not talked about. So we're all architects are obsessed about aviation for some Mm -hmm. reason, I don't understand it. Yet we all go on holiday, but this thing that we're doing now is bad for the environment. Well, we're not pretending that it isn't bad for the It's not strictly speaking greenwashing, but we need to be aware of of the the facts of the choices that we make. I think that's really important. Aviation, we know the data, so it's not greenwashing. It's not good either, but it's not greenwashing.
2: It's not, but we do see we do see architects and engineers and everybody kind of involved in practices that they know are problematic still. Um, you know, we we don't see the press releases being like we are contributing to this problem and we are perpetuating this issue within society. The press releases and the way that we talk about this is still like trying to make that kind of 20 percent reduction on um, plastic used by Coke or whatever. It's like we do still use we do still see greenwashing done to sort of hearts like semi gaslight ourselves. And I'm just wondering, I mean, and we don't want to go on about Heathrow for the whole time, but I'm just wondering Angela, in those conversations, the difficult conversations that you've had to sort of have internally and in the public forum as well, like how much, how, how is it, how is it like decided how how you're actually going to approach this, how you're going to like mitigate the fact that you are obviously part of a really problematic industry and how, what role does the communication of that play in that, in making that decision?
3: I mean the interesting thing I think when you're talking t- particularly internally to staff so you know we're we're just under 300 people if if you if you talk complete you, you know greenwash to our staff they won't have it like you know yeah. pe- people you know they're, they're, it, no one's going to listen to that I mean and that's the thing about architects is is we don't we don't sit there and listen to shit we we know what it is and and i and i think that's that's really important i think we we have made some decisions around airports about how we'll work in that in that sphere and i think part of that is you know we want to work with um with clients who who you know and I, and i think a lot of uh, british clients and you know uh, and french clients etc you know have pretty pretty strong ambitions in terms of uh, reductions of uh, carbon and and that's really important to us to actually work with people who ha- are aligned with their ambitions so so for us, it's, it is about reduction and positivity and creating a positive message and we're all in it to create something positive. So, you know, so there isn't I, I think between us and our messaging between us, uh, it's less I, I agree with Marcus, it's less about greenwashing. We know it's problematic, but we also know it's an area that needs improvement, like we can't ignore that. So we want to be there to, to do that. So I think messages to architects are a different thing. I think there's, you know, there's some untruths and there's some half-truths that are kind of propelled in our industry. I think a lot of the uh, discussions are kind of almost outside of our industry where, you know, I think aviation, you know, gets a disproportionately bad rap, you know, a concrete. There's a lot of, you know, we eat meat. Like, there's a lot of problems that we have in our society. We need to address all of them. And I, I think that kind of holistic, uh, out, you know, that holistic viewpoint is is where we need to start with otherwise we're not going to resolve these issues that we need to
2: okay i want to go back to sabrina you talked about um this kind of diet of press releases that we are sort of uh fed on um and also how we have really sort of learned and in like embodied like deeply embodied a lot of this kind of jargony language mm-hmm. um and i wondered if you had any thoughts about how we can start to unlearn that and so that we can have a more frank conversation about um and then hopefully take better action
5: oh my gosh i mean listen as somebody who gets something i get very triggered very upset when i see i'm confronted with so much language that is piled on top of language that is piled on top of sparkles because I think the first thing that everything everybody can do is that understand that in so many cases because and like just to clarify like we're in the context of english language for this debate i think that as somebody who is not actually a native english speaker um english is a language that's very easy to learn but very hard to master and i think a lot of languages are a lot a lot of i think this applies for a lot of things and it's the mastery of language mastery of this kind of language of greenwashing of writing these press releases is not perpetuated by how many complex words and vague terms and glossy imagery you can project it's about being truthful and being honest and you need to be able to cut through so much bullshit to actually get through to actually get to a level of understanding that's not hiding or concealing something like a good like to pick up on Marcus's point here about about language and about greenwashing like in general it's interesting because so many of i think a huge problem like a massive massive problem is that the performances of some of the worst offenders of greenwashing like examples by stark attacks just examples covered in trees that um are you know not fully investigated by science and by data because like truthfully you need to monitor these buildings for a while and collect enough data and have independent scientific study to actually see if they live up to their promises right so the problem with that is that those come with a set of press releases and language that because of the success of that project being labeled a certain way and being a labeled like the new avenger and the new icon of sustainability and this is important outside of architect circles. So just in the media in general, in people who don't really like work in architecture, people who just think it's cool, Um, magazines like Vanity Fair, who will like publish this stuff and then more clients will see it, private clients and be and think, Oh, I kind of want that too. It's all about branding. And they even conceal some of the funniest things that they even conceal like concrete by calling it words like mineral facades, which I think is really cute. Um, <laughs> this, no, like, like the, so they'll, so like, if they have a building that's covered in trees, this has happened a lot, they'll talk about how the, leafy greenness of the foliage is like contrasted aesthetically with the mineral facades and the porcelain stoneware like y'all it's concrete okay like it is concrete um it's nothing else but they will like spin it in a way that will just make it look aesthetically appealing and gorgeous and like if i didn't see the building and didn't know a thing about what was going on i think it's great too so i think a massive problem with greenwashing is that it just gets replicated and disseminated everywhere because of the success of these performances and in order to undo that and counteract that you have to counteract that with the language of basically the language of the realm where understanding climate change come from comes from which is scientists because building in my opinion building a successful building that responds to the demands of our planet comes with having scientists then engineers then architects at the drawing table in that order it's not the other way around and i think a lot of design decisions that get done very very early on have to then be kind of met by because of a client's demands or because of whatever they they kind of stay through the whole building process without justification and that's the problem because the because working with scientists like just for reference working with scientists for the book They are so, so particular about what language needs to be used for something to be published. If you change a word wrong, it could negate their research. It it could get, they are so careful about what they are using to explain things because so much hinges on the validity of their work. And I think that is the complete opposite spectrum to the language of greenwashing. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what we have to invite into the conversation as architects, not, you know, not despite our design or despite the fact that we're architects, but because we're architects. Amazing,
2: that's very motivating, thank you. Um, Right, I'm gonna ask Marcus a question then, and we need to go to the floor. So I don't know if um, Rob or Bobby, you wanted to find some people to um, spotlight. Um, but meanwhile um, Marcus I wanted to ask you sort of bring you into that point about that language there I mean you mentioned earlier about um, sort of the the pressure sometimes um, for positivity and to create yeah that it can always be all too depressing but what role do you think um, language can have in sort of arguing us out of this conundrum well
6: um, I think that's actually the, the uh, language. I about the problem is partly the greenwashing problem because language is used to make, the, to paint a picture of, of getting us out of the problem. Um, definitions are really crucial and definitions are hard to come by. So for example, there's no internationally agreed standard, standard of um, compostable plastics. There's no internationally agreed standard of, of bioplastic. So brands can throw those terminology around and you think it's good. It's like, oh. It's, um, it's compostable, but compostable, most people will think, oh, if I buy a compostable chair, and then when I finish with it, I can just chuck it in the garden and it will de- decompose into nothing and the worms will be happy. It's like, no, you have to put it in an industrial composting machine. But that, so it's partly his definition, partly like comprehension. People don't know that. So you have to tell people, it's hard information to um, establish and it's hard information to communicate. Most people want an easy life um, greenwashing also, it's not only about climate change, it's also about biodiversity and things like that. Um, and I, I, I was just thinking that we should introduce the notion of personal greenwashing as well, because it's not just big bad corporations that are trying to trick us in, everyone thinking that they're green. We're doing it to ourselves. We want to convince ourselves and our, and, our, and our circle of friends that we're green, so we will not use plastic bags from the supermarket, even though, everything we buy in the supermarket is is wrapped in plastic that's like absurd that like you're kidding yourself the same you find the same thing with flying like you obsess about not going not going on a plane but drive a car or use use industrial plastics which use um the same fossil fuels and so on and so forth but a great example of personal bean washing is bees like people who think oh pollinators are really important to the ecosystem so i'm going to I'm going to support the local beehive or buy some honey or something like that. The European honeybee kills other bees. It's, it's actually damaging biodiversity to have beehives in in um in in cities because that's one type of super bee that takes the food from all the other types of bees. So you're actually damaging biodiversity. But people people don't know that and people don't think about it. So They think, oh, I'm supporting the environment by having A hive on my roof or whatever but it's actually it's actually damaging it's um it's it's so easy we can't just blame the corporations it's so easy for us to trick ourselves into thinking that we're doing good things for the environment without really thinking it through
2: that's brilliant thank you um have we got particular people from the floor sorted or do i can i pick people
4: if, before um, we go to the floor could I just come in I, I think uh, another point about um while we're just talking about words uh, I want to try and prove that it's not just airports to <laughs> 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 talk about um I think it's really important because because it is all about words isn't it there's two phrases that I think are quite often um kind of signs that some somebody's trying to greenwash um the word sustainable has been can now be used to basically describe anything it's it's become completely detached from its its actual meaning which is something that could be sustained for you know ad infinitum um now you can basically just slap the word on it and and it and it will uh, appear sustainable to people that are reading about it um and the other one is net zero Uh, net zero has been being used a lot at the moment and in its actual definition i I think it's it's good but it's it's like most people that read about it don't really know what it really means And, and most of the time when net zero is used at the moment it's it's used to describe a building which is kind of um its operational energy use is is zero or net zero meaning that it's kind of offset by renewables or or um, through an offset kind of scheme what it doesn't take into account is any of the other impacts of, of the building such as embodied carbon emissions or not even carbon emissions just the kind of wider environmental impacts that that building might have where the materials are coming from where the minerals are coming from that make the pv panels on the roof they're probably coming from a mine in the congo so by slapping this phrase on it, net zero, or by slapping the word sustainable on it. I think in a way, while it's kind of, most of the time it's well-intentioned, it is a sign of greenwash, I think. Um, And to to not just complain about it, I think what we should do is we should just start to have really honest conversations about buildings. Just speak about our projects really, really honestly, rather than trying to spin them with these, these phrases or words.
2: So is it because I mean, with it's true in so many different fields, right? That you have this kind of euphemism treadmill, and so you, there's one thing that you can say, and that means something, but then people co-opt it, and it gets misused, and so on. So then that um, that meaning corrupts. And so then you have to pick a new word. that's you're constantly kind of supplanting it. Do you think that's just inevitable, or do we need to do we need to find a new way of speaking? Is is it just if we stop trying to spin anything at all? Because I'm not sure that. I don't know, it's that youth and treadmill seems to
4: work in every other other field. I don't know if um, I, Sabrina I think or... it's just a quick answer to that. I think it's just that we need to find the right words. Sustainable's rubbish because it, it, it doesn't have any kind of measurable meaning. Um, net zero is equally... It's a bit better, I think, but it's equally rubbish because you're slapping a net just before the zero. So what does that net really mean? If we were talking about zero carbon, it's much more honest, I think it might be more in the right direction because you're not balancing it out with anything. It's just zero carbon. But maybe we need to find other words open to suggestions.
2: I think we'll always need other words. That's the problem. I right. To the floor, to the floor.
1: Okay. So uh one of the things that me and Maria picked out was a question from Lorenzo Pandolfi. Um So if you're ready, we'll just be able to ask you to unmute and we're going to spotlight you if that's okay
7: hey guys can you hear me
2: yeah
7: yeah yeah, I think, yeah well actually more than a question is um i made a comment following um a comment from another uh um guy um i think one point uh one point one point that he raised is uh probably one thing that needs to be done is to rethink really our architecture is made and and some tenets of architecture uh, because it probably means changing the way you actually design the interiors, you have to use less glass, for example, or or you know, insulate the spaces in a different way. So I think the general question is is are we ready really to change the way we design and and maybe ditch some of the you know some of the gods of modernist architecture, like uh, a lot of glass, a lot of, a lot of steel. I mean, everybody's still using those, and and, and we'll keep on on using them. Are we, are we ready to really ditch them or, or change the way we design? I think it's is a very far-reaching question, but I guess. And um, I was thinking also about academia. You know, I, I I love going to the open studios uh, in London where, where they were open. Not this year, unfortunately. But when you go there, obviously you you see that. You, I think it's right, you know, young people in the universe, it needs to be creative and think about the unthinkable. Uh, but is there really any restraint on that? Because obviously if you start <laughs> sketching skyscrapers on Mars and you think that that's the right thing to do, yeah, it probably is at that stage, but then you 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 are in the real world and, and these are probably the most unsustainable thing ever. So uh, education also is, is a big Part of it, I guess. It's it's a bit long winded, but yeah, hope I made point.
2: No, but I like. Lo- mean, I like this point about our like stand ideas and standards of beauty and how they change. And I, I mean, anybody from the panel who would like to talk about that. I mean, I think Sabrina, you have touched it a little bit already about like who should, who should have the first go at the napkin sketch, and Marcus, obviously, you'll have something to say about standards of beauty, I should imagine. Um, but anybody want to come in on that? I mean, I don't...
5: Ooh, Sorry. oh, oh, go ahead.
2: Sorry, I, <laughs>
3: I want to say something about uh, design, and I, I think it's interesting. When we talk about beauty, which, which is a, another whole discussion. But the, um, but I think beauty it's washing. Issue, beauty washing. But I think that there's something in buildings that we love. Buildings that are built that people love, they'll care for and look after and reuse. And that I think this is a really interesting concept because in in the past, this is this is where buildings have really succeeded, kind of in in a terms of sustainable way. They have been maintained and they last a very long time. Um, and it's interesting as well. I think the, the the point before was, do we need to change the way we design? I mean, we have changed the way we design quite a lot. And 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 I think uh, some of uh, we we had a project that we did in in Bath uh, that Grimshaw did in the 70s, the Herman Miller factory, and it was done all in modular uh, and demountable, and you know it was DFMA. This was in 1974. It was built. We were asked to go back a couple of years ago now and and, and transform this into the Bar School of Art. It's a loose fit building, it could change function. Uh, And actually, it was a really good opportunity to go back to a building that was designed to be adapted. Uh, And, you know, and we just wanted to go back as well. And we were interested to see whether it could do what it said on the tin. And that was to um, actually move entrances, to move some of these panels around and make it into a new building. And it worked and it happened. And that's from 50 years ago. I don't think we need to kind of necessarily change the way we do things. It's because I think there are some really good examples of how we are doing things well. We just need to be better at sticking to that and creating the buildings that are loose fit, are flexible and our buildings that we want and we love. And I think it's the the kind of cheaper developer type buildings, you know, the kind of the ones that are kind of boshed up really quickly, which are the first ones to come down. So, you know, I think we really need to think about what we are building and, and build, you know, build carefully and respect, respectably.
2: Sabrina, is that you wanting to come in previously? Oh,
5: yeah, um, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, I absolutely agree with what Angela is saying. And I think I'd like to bring um, one more topic, maybe it's a white elephant into the panel and into this conversation on buildings that are designed with care and buildings that are designed to be beautiful. Something that really interests me about greenwashing and about buildings that strive to kind of reach this like new nexus of all these things being fulfilled is who they're for right who whether they're private or public and who they're serving so essentially who is this investment who is this project going to be for in the long term in the short term and what all these efforts are directed like who is being, who is benefiting off this and a great example is tech campuses so like um, by tech campuses i mean you know amazon's campus apple's campus google's campus like The tech giants, because if you think about it, like these are the almost the opposite to the buildings that Angela described, like you know, the ones that are done really, really quickly, like the ones done, the really shit ones by developers that just fall down and crumble, um, like after a few years, like the ones with very, very little care, because these clients are the ones that have the most money that have the most initiative to create the best place for who is working in them, and they're off also. reason i bring this up is that they're the most publicized right they appear everywhere when a new campus when a new project like this gets built it is global news i remember um do you guys remember in 2017 when apple park opened um i remember like who was it like stephen levy in wired they did a super super deep dive into apple park's campus and i remember what Marcus was saying about biodiversity, I got into a bit of a dark hole reading about it. I was uh, I had to write about it for Arc Daily at the time. So I like went in. And they it's so interesting because they hired like a professional arborist, conservationist, and like instead of you know planting trees on buildings on concretes, which, which was problematic, they recycled soil from Cupertino Valley, which was extremely nutrient dense, very healthy for the trees, and they essentially built an entire forest. middle of their building that everyone knows about because we've seen the pictures and we read about it and it's a common thing and i thought to myself you know obviously i don't know all the information about what has gone into the actual building but there was a huge effort to basically restore a lot of biodiversity and i think it's 80 acres of forest that got installed but then i realized that it's only open for the people who work at apple like this is not a public contribution in any way. It never will be unless they turn that building into a museum later on. And I think that's something that we also have to bring to the table because it's the the people who are creating these solutions that get spoken the most about and therefore are the most pertinent things to be discussed in the realm of greenwashing because it's the privatized virtue of it all. It's who these buildings are for, whether they have a social responsibility. And like, that's obviously a bigger conversation, but a lot of these, projects that fall into very, very firmly the realm of greenwashing are often fulfilling certain sustainable goals to an extent because obviously it's very vague. But at the end of the day, if all those promises are for a very, very, very small percent of people, what's the point of entering them into this conversation? Like, what's the point of projecting their designs or projecting their projects on such a massive platform? That's something I'm really curious to understand because I don't think that will go away. I think journalists will still talk about these massive, massive epic projects and I think that will still be disseminated. But what do you guys think about it?
2: Marcus, do you want to come back on that?
6: Um, And then maybe
2: Oscar Rodriguez, would you ask your question? Because I feel like that's related. But yeah, should we be be giving such a massive platform to projects that any benefit
6: or are accessible to a very privileged few um, well it, if we're talking about greenwashing i don't i think that's a bit of a tangential um, argument to be honest um, what we we need exemplars we need we mm. need examples of projects that are actually doing their best to be to to be good examples under the current knowledge base that we had that we have. I mean, in 10 years' time, we might think, oh my God, I can't believe we were doing that, as we are now looking back on the past and thinking that was a disaster. But the, there's a there's a consensus at the moment around climate change, right? That, that it, Climate change is a bad thing and therefore we need to stop it. That, hence, hence, most of the comments in this talk are about, are architects talking about how they can contribute to stopping climate change, either by not putting more carbon into the atmosphere or actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Okay, we, result, we've reached a consensus on that. So anything that can demonstrate uh, a, a zero-balance carbon, um, um, a zero carbon or taking stuff out of the body, that's what we're currently gunning for, right? That, that's, at least we've got a consensus. That a few years ago, that didn't even exist. We're not quite there with biodiversity yet, but what's really exciting is the, the idea of rewilding. So to go back to the question about changing notions of beauty, I think, and I'm hoping that something that's going to change profoundly is we suddenly appreciate wildness, untamed wildness. You start to see it in in uncut meadows, uh, verges, for example, wildflower meadows. You start to see in bits of the park where they leave the the trees to rot. That's a a profound change in our aesthetic framework because it's like, if you let nature get on with it, it will solve itself, it will fix itself, and, and so on and so forth. That has huge implications for the city because we want to control it. We're used to wanting to control everything, we want to cut every bit of grass, concrete over every patch of ground, um, scrub off the lichen and the moss that grows on stuff. That, that's really exciting and profound change. And, and, and why? Because, because we need to retain biodiversity because it holds all of the secrets of life. And as soon as a species is gone, it's gone forever. So that's another kind of consensus that I think is emerging. I think that's probably enough for me to say on the topic, but the point I'm trying to make is, you need to reach a consensus about what needs to be done. And then you need exemplars of how it can be done that people can hold up. So if the Apple campus, if only Apple employees can go to that park in the middle, but it's a biodiverse success, I'm all for it. It Just needs to be replicated.
2: Replicatable to go to... um... Oh, the chat's gone too far, Tom Bennett's point. I thought we, Amy Frierson had a good question. Oscar
1: is ready, actually, by the way. I think he just took a while to turn on his microphone. Okay, no Sorry. problem. Thanks, yeah.
8: Um Just following on from what Marcus said, really, this whole idea that um, we have it in our power to, you know, create the trend that we want to see more green stuff around us. And frankly the biosphere doesn't really care about our great ideas what it cares about is whether or not it's got diversity and quality and quantity of living organisms around it doing its it's it's its, all all those various dances that sort of contribute to a a sort of biosphere and 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 a nature that we celebrate and it seems that recently in our economy we We really value this idea of like being more green and being sustainable. But at the same time, most of our activities are just they impose a biospheric load, which is very difficult to recuperate, Um, especially if at the same time you're supposed to be making a profit. And hence you're going to get greenwashing because greenwashing is just the result of trying to sell something as being the thing that is valued. but it not really being particularly good at what we're saying it is so we're, we're caught between a rock and a hard place so again you've got to go back to what you can actually do so the biosphere values very few things that humans actually do it values our excretions are <laughs> the carbon that we emit through our breath the fact that now and again, we might kick a seed into the right place. um, And very little else. Um, Those are the those are those are the activities that contribute to biospheric cycles. Now, given that we've done so much damage to it, the things that we can do is, uh, you know, just plant more trees and and plant more photosynthetic area. Um, And I mean, we're in a really good place to be able to sort of make that a good thing to do or make that a valued um, activity within the economy. Um, So, I mean, if we if we want to avoid greenwashing, I think we should quite literally wash everything with green. That's a little pun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh,
2: Thank you. So greenwashing is more of a a symptom of a deeper problem, really. Um,
8: yeah, we're caught. Cool. We, we need to sell, but we, we've got to sell things, but we can't impose biospheric load in doing so. And those things can't impose biospheric load. But everything we do imposes biospheric load, particularly the population densities that we live in. So now that it's called cool to, um, is it reverse biospheric impositions or is it to not impose biospheric loads because that's where this whole sort of rewilding regeneration now that's in fashion and that's considered valuable whereas before it was about being efficient right so doing less harm um so I,
6: i think you're making loads and loads of really really interesting points um i think again It's really important to think about consensus. There's a consensus that climate change is wrong. Before, there Mm. wasn't a consensus that climate change is wrong. There was a consensus that this was good. Now, we're all, I think it's driven by nostalgia. We're suddenly realising we're screwing everything up. We're not screwing everything up, we're changing things. And we're now nostalgic and we want to keep it as it is or as it was 20 years ago. But your point about the biosphere doesn't care is really profound because the biosphere will carry on even after... Mm -hmm. It just really won't be like it is now. But also the, yeah. thing, the thing about the way we're, we're overloading the biosphere in different ways, like, well, how do we know? Because that's one of the interesting things about the plastic debate There's an assumption, there's a consensus that putting plastic into the environment is bad,
8: but
1: we yeah. don't
6: do that. There may be some little microorganisms that will evolve in, I mean, I have to think in, in planetary time rather than human time, in 500,000 years time, yeah. there may be a whole new breed of bugs that love plastic. And they'll be like, well, hey, and we'll have done a good thing. But that's in kind of planetary time, not in. Marcus,
8: everything you've just said is within a George Carlin comedy special. (laughs) Literally. Um, George Carlin, for those who don't know, is is probably the greatest comedian of all time. Um, I mean, he studied in law because of his 12 uh, filthy words that you can't say on television. But he has one Sorry, Oscar. Um, I just okay. Have to
1: come in here a bit, I think. Well, like, we you. could go on about this for
8: a
2: while. <laughs> thank you very much for the tip. <laughs> um,
1: no, yeah, look it up. We had. Thank Amy you. Chris All and- right,
2: we are um, we are coming to the end of our time. Um, uh, Bobby, can we can we do Amy's question and put it to the panel? Because I think it was quite a good like final cool. final thing to go to everyone to bring it back a little bit more to greenwashing.
9: Hi, oh, yeah. Um oh. yes. Um, so my question really is like, as a journalist, I feel like I'm kind of constantly learning and sort of find, like identifying examples of greenwashing, you know, sort of the more press releases I read, the more I sort of start to identify things that are, you know, words that are being used kind of without really understanding the meaning of them. And so I thought like what, when we are sort of thinking about the issue of this argument being bound to just people's like understanding of the science and understanding of the technology, I guess it'd be useful for, I mean, ideally anyone on the panel that's got an example of some of the sort of most common types of greenwashing to look out for, like sort of statements that are being bandied around often because they're sort of an easy trap for people to fall into. Like, are there kind of common greenwashing traps that we can avoid just you know by just sort of learning, learning about them? I mean, one example I know is like, and one that Marcus has sort of written about before is um, like biodegradable, like the term we will use it and we kind of know what it means, but ultimately like whether something is biodegrades in a very short time or a very long time, you can still say it's biodegradable. So I wonder if panel has any other sort of examples that that we can look out for to sort of try and avoid- Great, grading. let's um, room 101,
2: some greenwashing terms. Let's <laughs> go round. Um, Go reverse order from introductions. So, Marcus.
6: Well, it's it's, it's a bit unfair of Amy to ask that question. I did write an article and spent a lot of time looking into this, but okay, here's one that hasn't come up. Ocean plastic. Ocean plastic is is greenwashing because you you think it's plastic that's in the ocean. It's not. It's it's, it's, It's plastic that might have made its way into the ocean if it hadn't been plucked from a beach or collected from a bin near the sea. Or whatever the whole idea of ocean plastic um is is a fraud in my view the ocean cleanup project which is claiming it can take all of the plastic out of the ocean oh also the great pacific garbage patch like we we've got, we've we've been led to believe that this there's this kind of greenland style landmass of plastic that you could almost walk on it's so dense absolute nonsense it's like soup the plastic particles are about a millimeter on average absolutely useless can't do anything with them. And there are microbes living on them, so this evolutionary thing that I was talking about earlier might already be happening. Um, Some some of the worst greenwashing comes from the green sector.
2: Okay, thank you Marcus. Sabrina, what greenwashing would you like to highlight and bin?
5: Mm. Any claim that a building is trying to project itself as a forest. forest, a jungle, green lungs, like anything that especially 1 million percent, especially if said forest is trees above ground level, like basically like put, put on a building, like mm-hmm. uh, because the whole point of a forest for it, for a forest to work and like forests don't even, for a forest to work, they have to have a network of trees and a massive network of mycelium and fungi, like they're only study, like they're only beginning to understand just now, like the vast, vast acres of like underground root networks that happen across forests that literally just sustain trees that are like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And that can only work when they're in this interconnected network um, that relies on different microbes, different bacteria, different fungi to basically sustain them. Like you, if a lot, like an example, if a tree is, if, if one tree is dying and being like, and having issues and having problems with obtaining sugar and obtaining light, some trees, you know, if they're the, a lot of them, if they're part of the same same tree finally, like beaches or something, trees down the line of the network can actually send sugar and resources down to it. And life li- its lifespan can essentially be sustained for longer than when it's just on its own, you know, in a vat of concrete in isolation. So this idea of calling a building a forest, especially in an urban context is just patently wrong. So that, and I feel like a lot of buildings love to do that, especially ones that subsist on a diet of renders, because like, we all know that like the gap between like the render to reality is like, it's like problematic anyway. So any kind of forest language Any forest.
2: No trees in solitary confinement, masquerading as forests. Thank you very much. Uh Joe.
4: Yeah, there's a big one that we haven't talked about. So the the word sustainable concrete, if you ever see that, it's just it's it's just a load of rubbish. That the concrete companies are, I think, the oil companies of of architecture and the built environment. Um not because the scale is is as bad, but that I think it's more the way they're behaving. So um, you know, earlier on and I was unsustainable as an adjective generally, I
2: suspect. <laughs>
4: yeah. But um I mentioned this BP advertising campaign earlier. So the only reason that they pulled that in the end was because this um this organization called Client Earth, who are like um kind of um legal campaigning group. They, they challenged BP on this and eventually BP withdrew this big global advertising campaign painting themselves in a the, in the green light. And they said, they said that they would stop doing what they called corporate reputation advertising, which I think is just such an interesting term. It was them that said this. If you think about that for a second, corporate reputation advertising. And then think about the concrete industry. They... The concrete industry is spending quite a lot of energy time and energy at the moment in, in painting its, its, um, its materials in a kind of sustainable light when it's really hard to avoid the fact that at the moment you need a huge amount of um, fossil fuel to, to heat up the um, uh, during the process of making it to heat, heat up the, the limestone and not only that but you need the, the process itself kind of um, creates CO2 in the in the chemical reaction, and, and that at the moment is just um, yeah. let out into the atmosphere. But they spend a lot of time talking about all the other things about concrete, about its thermal mass, about um, how it sucks up carbon during its lifetime, about how they're investing a lot of money into carbon capture and storage, but just not doing it yet. So... Yeah, I don't know, sustainable concrete. Also, they they've they've been coming to ACAN meetings recently, the concrete industry. And <laughs> I won't name names, but there's, there's that awkward. <laughs> there's people from the concrete industry that have been coming to ACAN meetings and using the chat box uh to basically like put forward these arguments about how concrete is sustainable and it just it winds me up so much. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I think concrete. that's
2: in some twisted way actually a compliment to Acan. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. um, all right, let's um, Angela. That kind of
6: just a quick point. That's something. An example of something that's even more insidious than greenwashing, which is lobbying. I mean, Oh yeah. My God, you should do it. one of these talks about lobbying. Is just
2: the death of the planet.
5: That's a good idea.
2: Great idea. Okay, Angela, bring us home. Throw something in the bin for us.
3: All right, so so mine actually is picking up a, a one of Joe's earlier points. Uh, it's it it's net zero carbon, but it's 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 when people say, oh, I've I've just uh, uh, carbon balanced my office, and they've literally just thrown money at it, and they haven't even put in a low energy light bulb. Like do you know, this this really annoys me, and I, and I think this is the the I mean the original question, Amy, uh, hmm. is is kind of going back to fact, like. What have you done? How does it compare? And how have you solved this problem in a meaningful way? That's my point.
2: Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Who do I hand back to? (laughs) Um, Let's thank everybody um, for taking part. And then I think we all just have a party now, right?
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to give a uh, goodbye outro from 4Space. So I'll pass over to him. Yeah, I think we um, when we do a Negroni talking but we normally ca- try and carry on, and uh, we open up all the mics to the um, to have a general chat, and people f- just sort of slowly drift away eventually until the last person switches out the light. So uh, thanks to uh, everybody who contributed. Thanks to you, Maria for sharing uh, an interesting chat, and um, yeah, we're back in I think three weeks for the next one. So um, yeah, thanks to everybody.
0: Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.